This podcast is in the loop, the Legion of Osiris podcasts. Osiris is creating a community that connects people like you with live experiences and podcasts about artists and topics you love. Get in the loop at OsirisPod.com. DIY and How Studios present Deeper Digs in Rock, part of the Rock and Roll Archaeology Project. Music, culture, technology, and rock and roll. Now, on with the show. Hello again, all you diggers. Welcome to Deeper Digs in Rock, a production of the Rock and Roll Archaeology Project. I'm Christian Swain, and I'm behind the mic in San Francisco. As the name suggests, Deeper Digs in Rock goes a little deeper, digs into diverse topics that are all connected to rock music in their own unique way. Please subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. And if you love the Rock and Roll Archaeology Project, and you should because we love you, anyhow, you can support the project financially via Patreon or PayPal. Please visit rockandrollarchaeology.com for the link. One dollar a month, friends. Just one dollar to keep up the rockin'. Okay, business handled. We're good. So, on to part two of our conversation with Jeff Slate, music and culture writer for Esquire magazine. Let's begin with one of Jeff's favorites. Every sperm is sacred. Every sperm is great. If a sperm is wasted... God gets quite irate. You like that? I sure do. Monty Python's 1983 film, The Meaning of Life. Yep, every sperm is sacred. Now, I didn't say Jeff wrote it. I just said that it's a favorite song of his. So, I bring this up because this is how we bonded. It wasn't our love of music or our knowledge of rock history that Jeff and I first connected on. Nope, (laughs) it was Monty Python. Uh, Not sure exactly what that says about us, but hey, there it is. Jeff and I are from roughly the same era, trailing edge boomers slash frontline Gen Xers, and we both waste time thinking about shit like this. So I suppose it's only natural we would try to find our, a little I don't know, cultural touchstone that we both share. Turns out it was the Knights Who Say Knee. My guess is we both loved, and and still love, how the Pythons pushed limits and broke new ground, just like good rock and roll does. But I digress. We left you all with a cliffhanger at the end of part one, right? I asked Jeff how he went from full-time musician chasing the record machine to rock writer for publications like Rolling Stone and Esquire, and we'll get to that. 
We'll also spend a chunk of time breaking down Jeff's three CD releases, Birds of Paradox, Imposters and Attractions, and Secret Poetry. We'll hang out with Jimmy Page and make a video with Earl Slick and more. So let's do it. This is part two of my interview with Jeff Slate, rocker, writer, and raconteur. You went to NYU, you, you studied journalism, you're also playing music, and, and really, if you could be a music, I would ask, if you had to choose one or the other, obviously you would choose musician, but um, let's talk about the writing. How, you know, how did that kind of grow uh, into, uh, you know, where you, you, you know, you're writing for Rolling Stone and Esquire magazine? When you're by yourself and you're assessing your qualities, I think you know if you can play with the big boys in certain things. And I, I think I have the skill to sit down and write that a lot of people, do. you know, I can put forth my thoughts in a way very easily that some people really struggle at. So there is that. But by the same token, you know, I did have access to a lot of people because over the years, knowing Pete means you know people. Knowing Pete means you know Zach Starkey, who means, which means right. you have a connection to Ringo, which means you can at least call his office a hundred times and say, will we do an interview now? Will we do an interview now? Will we do? And once you've got kind of a few of the names, you know, a, a few of these names, and you've treated them well, and they know you're serious, you really know music in a way that is beyond just an academic thing, because I think the problem is, for many musicians who are interviewed, the people who've interviewed them only know it as writing about music is like talking about fucking you know it's like you know it's it's ultimately unsatisfying in, in so many ways if you don't understand how to do it well, and, uh, and yeah, I you think, should dig you should you should be interested and have an appreciation for the subject matter and uh, you know yeah. some depth of knowledge before you start uh, cutting it off unless you know you're doing this for people magazine or EW or something like that well and I think but even then because I know people who you know I have a good friend who writes for people and he he he's not a professional musician but he's a musician more than just in his garage and his mind mm. and and I think that adds to anything he delivers to people magazine and I and I so I I don't want to denigrate you know I don't want to paint with broad strokes but by the same token if you're sitting across the table from if you only got you know 20 minutes with Jimmy Page and you're sitting across the table with him and you know you're able to drop into conversation that you've played with Pete Townsend who's you know, he's known for 50 years. Yeah, who Jimmy um, Page plays on the first two single. Yeah. You know, if you yeah. don't know that, maybe you shouldn't be asking those questions. Yeah, but I, but I, it also gives him a level of comfort that, well, if Pete, you know, you've been friends with Pete for 25 years, there's something there that is worth me paying attention to you as much as you're paying attention right, to me. Right. Now, you have to bring the goods. Again, it's just like the demos we were talking about, exactly. songwriting exactly. we were talking about. You know, it was funny because we had this conversation and I admitted to him, you know, I'm, I'm not a, a huge Zeppelin fan, but I, I know the stuff. I grew up with it. How can you not? And and he goes, and I said, you know, and I, I've got a pretty substantial bootleg collection. And he said, oh, well, okay. You know, how many, how many live shows do you have? And I said, well, I actually have a hard drive with everything 
dated and numbered. And I think I counted when I was prepping for the interview, 256 bootlegs. <laughs> and he, and he laughed and he said, okay, first of all, I don't think Wait a minute, you're not a fan. <laughs> yeah. And he said, and seriously, you're not a fan. And I said, well, like anybody, that's my library, you know, like any musician, that's my library. That's my research. That's my, right. I may not be, you know, one of these people who lives and breathes Led Zeppelin, no. but it would be wrong for me not to know the, the, the power and significance that they carry to a huge number of people in the world. It would just be wrong not to be aware of where that comes from. And, and maybe I've never listened to half of those, but I've got them. And if somebody says, if you're missing this, you're missing everything about them, I can dial it up and listen to it. So that was like a whole side conversation. And so the next time he came to town, I got a phone call. Hey, he really wants to talk to you. And I thought, wow, that's kind of cool, you know? Yeah. And sure, he rem- the old guys all love Esquire. They want to be in Esquire. They see that as, you know, something that they identify with. They it, it's existed from their day. Their era, and they, right. yeah. So if you're treating them fairly and you know their stuff and they're also in Esquire, I think, or Rolling Stone too, you know, certainly that gives you entree to all of, you know, it's, it's sort of like, you know, the, the Venn diagram, once you've got Pete and Tom Petty and Jimmy Page and Ringo, and then, you know, it's kind of like, then you've got Ray Davis and then you've got, you know, all these other characters, Steve Jones and Johnny Marr, and, you know, they all kind of, Brian Wilson, they all kind of start, you know, falling in uh, to your roster of people you can call when they have something new coming out. And, and that's um, so, you know, but again, you have to have no fear. You have to not be afraid for Ringo's Ringo or Ringo's publicist to say, yeah, I don't want to talk to this guy. Uh, you yeah, can't take it's that personally. Yeah, 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 yeah. 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 And you can't take it personally. So, so you've been writing, um, what, since uh, 2004, 2005, is that, uh, you know, in the um, uh, periodicals? I started, yeah, I started doing it, I want to say, for K-pop, I think, in the mid-2000s, because I had you know, kind of a knowledge of the studio and tech. And that's, that's a pretty esoteric yeah, industry magazine, yeah. but, but it led me to, you know, Jeff Emmerich, who's the Beatles engineer and, and people like that. Um, some of the guys who'd worked with Pink Floyd. And, and then I, from that, I started writing about the Beatles for some of the Beatles. There was a magazine in the two thousands called Beatleology and wrote about bootlegs and wrote for Beatles fan. And then that led to writing for the examiner as a guest columnist and then I got my own column and then you know you realize that you're getting a lot of eyeballs and you can probably reach out to bigger publications and so I got approached to do some liner notes for the small faces because I'd done some articles with them and they knew I was a huge fan and I knew Kenny Jones through Pete so you know right, kind right, of yeah. and I met Matt because the badge had wanted to open for the bump band a bunch of times and so you know when when they were like oh well we'd really like to do these liner notes and Jeff knows Pete Townsend he knows Paul Weller he knows Noel Gallagher maybe he can ask these people. So you're asking these people to do pieces of the liner notes anyway. So you're like, well, maybe I can interview this guy. So, I, you know, interviewing somebody like Noel Gallagher or, um, you know, Kenny and Mac for a place like K-pop, it's not a waste, but you know, you can get, you know, you can, if you're pitching to other places, somebody will be interested. And sure enough, people were, I ended up uh, around the time of Mark Lewison's 
uh, tune in the big Beatles biography. The New York Times was interested in a um, a review of it. They couldn't have anybody in house because they were all friends with Mark. So I did a review of it. They ended up not using it. And so rather than take the kill fee, I said, can I just take it somewhere else? And they said, sure. And so I asked around to, you know, people who were writers who I knew because they knew me as a musician. And somebody said, oh, I, I think Esquire would really like this. I approached Esquire and they said, we'll use it tomorrow. Wow. Um, and so, you know, but then my next piece, well, the next piece I did after that was kind of a roundup of the best pieces for the year. I think that was maybe 2000. 12 or 13. And then the piece I did after that, which was in the works kind of right away, was an interview with Ringo. So right off the bat, I had a piece about the Beatles and an interview with Ringo within like a month (laughs) of connecting with Esquire. Then I did... And then I interviewed Elton John and Jimmy Page, you know, and these were all people that I, I had connections because I either knew their PR people or I, you know, whatever it was. And once you've got that under your belt, you kind of own that, you know, they'll take your pitches really seriously. Part of that was just luck and timing. Those people just had projects available, mm, you know? Yeah, yeah. And, they, um, they, they, and they, they needed to promote and you were there and uh, it all kind of worked out. Right. And by the same token, the editor at the time, uh, you know, really liked what I was doing and that I was getting eyeballs from an audience that they had not been getting. You know, they, they didn't they weren't covering classic rock all that much before I came along. They'd been doing more, you know, Ryan Adams and, um, you know, Radiohead and so try, Kendrick Lamar. Try, trying and, to stay current. Yeah. And, and they, they were current. They have some really good music writers there that don't do what I do. And, and I don't infringe on what they do and they don't infringe on or impinge on what I do. And, and that's cool. You know, I mean, I have these, you know, I got an email from one of the guys at Esquire this morning, wanted to know Keith Richards's recipe for his, you know, his cocktail nuclear waste. And I'm like, I can ask him, you know, I, I, I <laughs> Hold on a minute, either I'll bump into email, him right? or I will. Yeah. I mean, you know, I can email Bernard Fowler who's <laughs> going to see Keith long before I do. And I bet you he's just going to know it. he's been with the stones for so long. They know I can do that. That's not their world. Just as it would be, um, you know, if I wanted to, you know, know something about one of the bands that, you know, the, you know, in, in their world, they would have that connection that I would not have. So, you know, it's, it's copacetic and, and, and I'm fortunate they, at this point, I've been doing it long enough for, for ish plus years that they almost never say no to an article I want. I mean, they let me do an article about David Crosby's Twitter account for Christ's sake. I mean, you know, <laughs> yes, they I really, let, and, and, and the greatest thing about it but was, he does have a totally really interesting up. Twitter account. So yeah. he does have an interesting <laughs> Twitter account, but, but he also doesn't have and millions let's face of it, followers. Twitter is like a big thing. You know, so. It is. It is. But by the same token, they let me do it when most publications, if you pitch that to them, they'd be like, you want to do what about what? You know, he's only got 60,000 followers. Who cares about that? It wasn't that. It was they understood that I was going to bring in it, that I knew him, that I had a connection with him, that I was going to be able to talk to him about this in a way that he would be less guarded than with other journalists. Mm -hmm. And it would be funny and loose. And I would probably get something outrageous. And sure enough, it all happened. happened. And it blew up like around Christmas time when nobody was really looking at online stuff. 
post-election and during the holidays and so on. That piece totally had a life of its own. And and more power, it promoted Cross and he his album his last album, his solo album, Lighthouse is fantastic. I'm glad yeah, it got yeah. that some attention from that piece. And I'm also glad, you know, the it, it proves to the editors, my editors, that these old guys do have an audience and do have a following and they do have something to say when they're not in I'm promoting a new record mode. <laughs> you know, they, they can kind of well, yeah, they the can be answers, revealing the canned answers, right. right, right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, I, you know, I'm not um, – I try to stay away from interviewing people I don't either have a real passion for covering or that I don't have some connection personally with. You know, like I, I would have interviewed Steve Jones's, uh, Steve Jones about his book just because we had a connection from the 80s and, and I love Jonesy's Jukebox's radio show and, mm-hmm. and I think he's a, a super funny guy. That his memoir is probably the best rock and roll memoir I've seen in 10 years. Second only to Dylan's is just icing on the cake that we actually had something to talk about you know i wanted to talk to robbie robertson because he's robbie robertson man i mean you know that's like he was there at the epicenter of something really huge and special for 10 years yeah so um you know those opportunities that i can speak their language and that i have access for me i get people who come up to me at my shows all the time oh man i saw that interview with robbie Robertson. it really meant so much to me that you 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 were there for me man and and i get that you know, um, same as when I'm standing on stage with Slick and there's guys in the audience with the, you know, devil horns and they're, you know, they're, they're, I remember this guy at a show not that long ago. It made his day, his night. And he came up to me, gave me a huge hug afterwards because to him, he was me on that stage. Yeah. He, if he could have changed places with me and I'm not, I'm not an inaccessible guy. Uh, you know, you can send me a message on, you know, via the website or, you know, justlate.net for yeah. all you listeners yep. or yep. Facebook or yep. Twitter or whatever. I'm reachable. And I, you know, I tend to respond, you know, they usually filter to me, even if they're from the fan page or the website or whatever. And I, I try if it's a, unless it's just some political screed or something, I, I tend to respond. Well, you kind of, you kind of have this uh, interesting spot in rock and roll where you've, you, you know, you've got a foot in the, the, the journalism side of writing about rock and roll, exposing the fans out there to, to some depths. But at the same time, you are a musician, you are out there playing and you're playing with a lot of these guys. So uh, I think there's a, a lot of folks, um, you know, myself included, that see you in this unique position, and uh, and it's really fun. It gives it gives your articles a different view, of a weight to it, and uh, the same thing with your music. Well, thanks. I mean, I, I think that's the point. I mean, I think that's from my point of view, I, I want it to carry that. I want, you know, I mean, I remember as a young kid in the 70s reading Rolling Stone and Cream and, you know, Hit Parader and whatever else was out there, The Village Voice and Soho News. And those magazines to me, newspapers, were really meaningful. And the yeah. writers who... Yeah. The writers who were able to spend a couple of days or partying with Zeppelin or partying with The Who or, you know, whatever it was, you know, or just had some insight that I didn't have yet right. as a young where, kid. Where was or the as magic a magic secret that I could maybe get a little bit better tomorrow? <laughs> 
Yeah, I mean, we're all fans. And, and that's the funny thing. It's like you, you know, I was, you brought up Journey before we were recording. And it was really funny because I couldn't believe when I was talking to Jonesy last, Steve Jones a couple of weeks ago, and he, he brought up Journey as a band he used to listen to when they were making the first Pistols or the only Pistols record. And I was like, whoa, yeah, whoa, whoa, jaw whoa, drop. Whoa. You know, right? <laughs> yeah. And let's backtrack here. I think I'm, uh, I, I can't be friends with you. Yeah. And, and, and it was funny though, because he's, he had the same attitude as you and I do, which is you learn something from everything yeah. you hear. Yeah. Oh, and there's some there's some sensibilities in that, for that there's something one and only you can Sex take, Pistols uh, album. So. Totally. It hasn't lasted this long only on legend. Right. You know, it's legendary, not just because it's infamous, it's legendary because the those songs are memorable. Those riffs are memorable. Those lyrics, Johnny's lyrics are remarkable. I mean, everything about it has, you know, it's, it's a debut that was just so explosive and, and, and special. You know, I think all of those things contribute to it. But to hear him say, sure, why not take from something that's, you know, melodic, that's, you know, an earworm, essentially. You know, I think that after I got over the dry heaves, I was able to understand <laughs> what he was saying. And I think, you know, I think there's, it's nothing different than what I'm saying about, you know, the people I love or the people that I've gotten, you know, that I've taken lessons from that other people might find right. kind of right. not so special. Right. So, you know, we, we, you put out three solo albums, I think Bird of Paradox in 2012. And then you, you yeah. did a, uh, it's fair to call it a cover album, I would assume. Imposters and Attractions, music inspired by Elvis Costello. So obviously you're a big Elvis Costello fan. And then just recently, this last year, you put out Secret Poetry. Let's talk a little bit about those three albums. Well, I'll deal with Imposters and Attractions isn't a covers album per se. It's it's funny. There's two covers on it. Mm-hmm. One's a Nick Lowe cover. Oh, <laughs> What's so funny about yeah. Peace, Love, and Understanding? And we also did 45. But the rest of the songs, the other 10, I think, were songs of mine that were... To me, kind of in Elvis's style, and were never going to fit into a project of my own. In other words, they were a little bit too close to homage that yeah. to, to put them on an album of my own would have been for me, artistically disingenuous. And I had a lot of them. You know, it's like, you know, some guys write, you know, everything sounds like the Stones or some guys write and everything. Sounds, yeah, you know, everybody has mean. their 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 style. And, yeah. and you know, I do that a lot. You know, if I, if I wanted to, I could do kind of like a Bowie Iggy record. I could do a Clash record. I could do a, a you know, a Faces record and or a Who record for that matter. But, um, but these, but those all fit within what I'm already doing. Right. Whereas Elvis's sound, his style is so singular, I thought these are never going to fit on a a record of my own. I'm never going to find a space. And so I had about five of those, and then I had another couple that I, one was on the Birds Paradox record, and one, two or three were on the first Badge record, and and they just kind of, you know, it made whatever it was, 10, 11, 12 songs, and I thought, I said to the guys who I made that record with, I want to do this in a week. I, I have a week. We're going to do two songs each day. This is, we're going to do, be totally old school. It's like old school Beatles. If it's not great, if it doesn't really, you know, 
So what? This is how we're going to do it. As long as the energy is there, right. Yeah, as long as the energy is there. I'm just kind of, this is like a stopgap because the the second record was taking a lot longer than I expected because of people's schedules and my schedule. And, you know, records are really expensive to make uh, because I'm still still a sucker for the big studio. You are, huh? Uh, (laughs) No tools for Jeff Slade, huh? Well, no, I do. I, I I use Pro Tools and I do a lot at home or in small studios. But by the same token, I still like to cut basic tracks in a real studio and I, I still know like what you to mean. do yeah. I still like to mix in a in a real studio and master in a real studio. You know, and those things are expensive. And I would look, I'm <laughs> you know, I grew up old school and I like to keep some things old school. But yeah, I mean I, I took my portable rig to Slick's house and we cut it in his little basement studio and I did almost all the vocals in my home studio and a bunch of overdubs with yeah, I had Lawrence Juber and Steve Holly. You know, Steve did percussion overdubs and Juber did a bunch of guitar at my house. I mean, you know, it's pretty loud, but, you know, and but that being said, you you know, it's it's nice to have real drums in the studio and the basic tracks in the studio and a real piano when you want piano and, and that kind desk. of thing. So right. Right. a Hammond, a real Hammond sounds different than, a, you know, synthesized Hammond. They just are very different. Yeah. So yeah. so so that's the ex- explanation. You know, imposters and attractions is, is a little bit anomalous, but it was also fun to make something quickly uh, down and dirty old school. Uh-huh. And mix, I mixed that at home and I mixed it, you know, I did the same thing. I mixed like two songs a day. You know, re- I think actually I mixed the whole record in two days, if I don't remember, if I'm not mistaken. But anyway, but the first record grew from the single with Slick, um, the Dreamtime single, and from May's uh, birthday party, looking around and Gary and Adam from Elephant's Memory there, or, you know, Steve Holly joined up. Well, and, uh, Bird, you know, the Paradox is uh, kind of an homage to May Pang, right? Abs- well, but, you know, it was like, how, how do we not name this for her when she was the reason we're all playing? You, right, because yeah, you got together at her birthday party, right, right. Yeah, and and I actually toyed with covering the song, but I'm, I just don't do covers, generally speaking, and, and certainly I didn't want to do a cover on my first solo no, record. record. So, but, you know, that record was, and it, you know, I certainly, it took like a year to make, but that was largely because you know, Steve and Lawrence were on it. All the Bowie guys were on it. Gene Parsons from the birds was on flying burrito brothers. You know, so there were a lot of guests and getting all those Simon Pete's brothers on it. Mark, Mark, well, did Mark Brzezicki, I think some percussion on it. You know, it's like all those people that I'd collected over the years made their little guest appearances. And so, you know, you find yourself either out of money or trying to schedule things. And, and, you know, and, and instead of, you know, there's a couple of tracks that have horns on them and they're real horns. Right. And, you know, you've got to have charts written and you've got to get horn sections together and you've got to, you know, it, it's just, it's one of those things where not having a, a budget from Sony or Universal or whatever, when you're, you know, it's coming completely out of your pocket, those things take time to put together. So, so the first record, you know, it's like the Ruddles, the first record <laughs> took a day and the second one took even longer. No, it was, you know, the, the, it, it took a good year plus to get that made. By the same token, once we were working on it in earnest, it came together really quickly. So, and and I have to say, I have to give a shout out to uh, our departed engineer Dennis Ferrante, who mixed the record. Who, when I thought the record was done, and he came in and tore it all apart and put it back together in the mixing sessions, and made it sound like 
a real record. Um, I really missed him uh, on Secret Poetry, kind of that special sauce, somebody who really knows how to mix a record, not just an engineer, but a mixer. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a, it's a, you know, I'm a, I'm an adequate engineer. I think the guy I work with, Mark Dan, who's just miraculous with everything from, you know, two inch 16 track all the way through to Pro Tools 12 or whatever we're on now. He's just, you know, if you don't have somebody like that in your life, you can be a little bit, you know, certainly behind the eight ball. But that being said, when you get to the mixing stage, that is a different skill. And and you miss that if you don't have somebody. Uh, I, I, I miss Dennis. He was really special. He worked with John Lennon on a bunch of stuff and, and The Clash and Kiss and Alice Cooper and however many other artists. And, you know, th- those guys hear things differently. They yeah. just hear things differently. Right. So, right. so and Birds then, of Paragraph. Yeah, go ahead. And then Secret Poetry came out uh, here uh, just uh, last year, I guess, uh, April 2016, right? Yeah, that took that took less time. Uh, not Longer than Imposters and Attractions, a lot less time than uh, Birds of Paradox. But again, you know, it was it was in and amongst doing live shows. It was in and amongst uh, writing and and also trying to get mainly Slick. Because I think Slick is on of the, I think there's 10 or 12 songs on it. And I think he's on seven, you know, and I was really passionate about having him on the record and he wanted to be on it. And, and so I think he was on two tracks and I went up to his house um, upstate and we did the other five in maybe one or two sessions and you know it's 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 one thing when you're cutting the guitars I mean imposters and attractions I did I think almost 100% of the guitars on that Mm -hmm. but to add add somebody like Slick to the mix and certainly uh, Carlos Alomar's on the guitar and Lawrence Juber's on, uh, on guitar on that album but Slick is the, you know, the kind of uh, the featured player. Man, I mean, you know, I'm I'm lucky to know him, let alone have him on my records. And we have fun doing it. That's well, kind of, you know, we, you sit around and drink coffee and play acoustics more than you do anything else when you're hanging out. With right, like that. right, so, right, right. Yeah. And then yeah. you guys did a video for uh, Letters from Paris. <laughs> yeah, it, it was a really funny, it was a really funny thing. It was like that we did a lyric video for that and everybody really liked it. And, and I remember I had this song that had been hanging around since I'd been on tour with the badge, I think maybe, or after the Pete stuff, late nineties, early two thousands call letter from Paris. And it was not complete. And I tried to complete it a couple of times and I'm glad it never came together. I think the badge tried it once or twice and it never really came together. But over the years I'd cut like, you know, real strings for it, for the middle section and, you know, all these other things. Once I got Steve Holly playing the drums on it, it kind of came together. Uh, Adam Polito played piano and Hammond that really added something, but it didn't have the hook. And I took it up to slip. Was it, was it always he, the, the middle section was the, 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 the crazy the, who thing. Yeah. yeah. I, it was, yeah. I love that. I thought the middle section was awesome. It, uh, it wasn't always, thank you. It wasn't always there in the very first demo when I wrote it, it was just kind of this riff, you know, the, the C chord riff. And, um, that just went to the, the B section. Uh-huh. It didn't have a middle and, you know, Pete, heard a demo of it and was like, where's the middle? It's, you know, he's like, I, you're trying to do a hoop thing. It doesn't have a middle. Open your, uh, open your mind. 
And, and, you know, so in an homage to him, I had this kind of ascending rough boys chord sequence that got totally, you know, when, once you add Hammond and piano and strings and, and string, those chords get a little bit lost, but then Slick added just this crazy guitar onto it. But, but what he added to it as well, what he heard it and was like, Oh, Valentine's day, which was a, a tune uh, yeah, he cut the, with Bowie. With Bowie though, right. For the last when time. we were working on it, it was, it was not long after the next day and after those sessions. And that, that session had made a real impression on him, that simple kind Kind of, you know, as he said, that Valentine's, the chord sequence is as old school as they come. It's as old school R&B, British guy playing white rock soul R&B as they come. So let's use that bag of tricks somewhere else. Hey, let's use it here. And so he had that, you know, he he hit that riff like almost the first time I played him the song. And then we just kind of tweaked. He was like, oh, let me give it to me again. And he, you know, did it again. And then we, you know, doubled it. So it has that sound. It's nothing like Valentine's Day, but you can see when you tell it to people, they're like, oh, I get what he was doing. Right. You know, it's like, it's the same bag of tricks. It's just a different song and a different riff and a different, you know, it's, it's, but it's the sense Sensibility is similar. And so I was at the Mudcrutch show that they did here uh, back at Webster Hall in the spring. And Roger McGuinn, I was fortunately, you know, I know the guys in the Heartbreakers and I was backstage. And during the show, Roger McGuinn was a guest. So we were, Roger and I, who I met many, many years ago, and his wife and his son Patrick were just hanging out backstage. And Patrick and I hit it off. He lives in the East Village. I gave Roger and his wife a CD and I I gave Patrick one too. And a couple of days later, he go, he called me up and he said, I really love this. I love, and he named a letter from Paris and candlelight. He's like, what do you think about doing a video? And I said, well, that'd be fantastic. <laughs> right. So we were, yeah, I'm like, because he's a filmmaker and he's a musician as well, but he's a filmmaker first and foremost. And so um, we were going to do candlelight as a very simple black and white, starkly lit, you know, performance, but we didn't know what to do with Letter from Paris. And Slick said, oh, come up to the house and we'll shoot it out in the woods. And so we tripped back in, I I don't, you know, it's maybe late summer or something. It's pretty warm out. We traipsed up to upstate to Slick's spent the day. Um, And Patrick just followed us around with the camera. And, you know, half the time we were playing like Keys to the Highway or something. But, (laughs) but it, it, you know, we we were having secrets of video making now. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. No, no, no. We were, we were playing the song too. But, you know, guys, it was funny because he caught us walking from the house down to this lake that's kind of a ways from Slick's house. And he said, hey, do you mind if I use that shot? I'm like, you can use whatever you want. And it really, it's, it's cool. It's evocative. We felt like it wasn't finished. It didn't really move that after the the middle section where it kind of gets a little crazy and breaks out, it should move forward. But they're, you know, without a budget, you know, Patrick wanted to get like models on a train making out and, you know, whatever directors see. <laughs> and, right. and, and Slick was really in favor of there being a story to it. And at my, my thing was, 
at a certain point, just pull the, pull the trigger, put it out there, let people see it. And, you know, let's do the next thing. I'm, you know, it doesn't have to be, you know, Slick's used to working with Bowie where everything is just really great. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so I'm like, you know, it's yeah, not going to be really great. completely We're done. utterly thought out to the, the, yeah, the degree. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, so, I enjoyed it. Yeah. I'm sure our fans will enjoy it. Make sure you go uh, and see Letters from Paris, uh, both the lyric video and uh, the video featuring yourself and uh, and Earl Slick. So, hey, Jeff, it, it's been great talking to you, and uh, I'm sure we uh, will do this again. Why don't you share with uh, what you got coming up? Do you have a new uh, a new album in the works? Uh, I know you've got a couple of shows. Uh, I think you're playing. Uh, uh, I think you got a birthday coming up here, and you're uh, you're at Hill Country Live in New York City on February 10th, and then you're at a, a Beatles Fest thing. Maybe you can talk about that. Well, we do fairly regularly with the Birds of Paradox lineup because two of the guys are from Elephant's yeah. Memory and Steve Holly from Wings right. and Lawrence Juber from Wings usually joins us. We we do that pretty much every year. Um, there's usually a theme to it. This year, we're you know a couple of years ago with Lawrence, we did a bunch of stuff from Back to the Egg, which is incredible. As a kid who grew up on that record, you know, here I am with basically Wings. Holy moly. Um, <laughs> right. But this year, it's the 45th anniversary of John's One to One. McCartney every once in a while? You know, it's a funny thing. One of the things I've learned, you know, in, in covering, I never did a lot of covers ever in my life. And in playing like three and a half hour shows at Hill Country and doing things like Beatles Fest and, and other things like that, I've started to you know, do more, more of them and some Dylan and, and Beatles and, well, and certainly Lennon Bowie, uh, stuff. You just did. Yeah. And, shows, the Bo- and, uh, and Bowie, which, Bowie, which yeah. came as a surprise. I'd never really done any Bowie covers. They're really hard to do and hard to pull off and make them your own. Right. You know, people, you know, there's really only one way to do them. So, and I don't like to do that. I like to kind of make it my own. So, um, but the thing that I got from Paul, from doing Paul's music a couple of years ago, especially was the power and energy he puts into his performances, his vocal performances, as well as his musicianship is really astounding. You don't realize how he's constantly in motion on stage. He's constantly singing, even if it's just the little asides and the little whoops and the little woo, you know, during the, during the solos and the keyboard parts and whatever he's, there's a lot to his performance that, you know, I think a lot of the cover guys miss. I I completely agree, yeah. They do it by rote as opposed to by feel. Right. And so, you know, you can never bring that to it because it's him, it's not you. But by the same token, listening to it over and over and trying to assimilate those things as a performer uh, and, and put your own stamp on it gave me a new appreciation for him as a performer and certainly a vocalist um, that that I had, but maybe not at that level. Similarly with Dylan, I've realized there's actually a song in, I mean, there's actually a story in every song. You may, it may not be obvious to you, but if you, there's a through line, if you learn the words, you learn this, the only way to learn Bob's words for me is to learn the story. And there's always a story. You have to find, the um, thread. you have to find the thread. Mm. But when, once you do that, you can remember it. it right. It's really like easy to remember it, in fact. So, I mean, there's, of course, anomalous songs and because he's written so many and so many, oh, you yeah, know, yeah. that are outside the construct of songwriting. But yeah. Um, so this year uh, at the fest we're doing, it's the 45th anniversary of John's one-to-one concert. Gary and Adam played with John, so we're going to do the set that John did that 
day. Um, and it, it's a it's a wacky set. It's like, you know, it's got come together in cold turkey, but it's also got New York City and woman is the nigger of the, nigger of the world. So it's it's a it's a really unusual set of uh, songs. And I'm looking forward to it. And then we'll we'll bring Lawrence up and do a couple of, you know, you know, maybe, I don't know, Long Tall Sally and Slow Down or something, you know, High 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 or something. Right. But um, but all those things are uh, learning experiences for me. And then then the spring Slick and I are talking about doing some Slick and Slate shows. We're going to make a record at some point. And so I, I'm hopefully I can pin him down in May and June if he doesn't go out on the road with something else he has tentative and then back out for the summer with the current lineup of guys doing the usual outdoor, you know, family friendly festivals and I, things I know here. Yeah. 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 And, and then, you know, I'm, I'm recording, there's a couple of singles I'm working on one with the ladies from Led Zeppelin and a couple of other things that are really offbeat for me with the Bowie folks and some, some other people I worked with in the eighties, believe it or not. And then, you know, like I said, I think my focus right now for writing is, you know, I'm always amassing songs for another record, but, but Slick and I have an eye toward doing something. Originally we were going to do a, a blues, an acoustic blues record. And then once the stones, we found out the stones oh, would did, do it. Did, and that kind of, now everybody's doing it. Blue, right. To me, it became, less much less appealing yeah. I think so then I just started writing songs for him and I to build around two acoustic guitars that doesn't mean it's not going to have electric or drums or whatever and we've got access to great drummers so you know whether Sterling Campbell or Steve Holly or Alex Alexander <laughs> plays on that lucky you um, yeah I mean you know we're really we're we're you know and we have a good time doing it so I, I have a feeling we're going to get in there and in a day or two of writing and two or three days of tracking will probably have enough for a record and and my hope is that in may and june although i haven't i've talked to his manager but i haven't actually talked to slick as he's on the road with the celebrating bowie thing yeah that i think will, they're in uh, uh japan right now they are literally in japan this minute yeah. so yeah so I, I gotta once he gets back next week i gotta say this is my window may and june the guys i want to use for the backing band may and june Let's make a record, do some shows, or do some shows, make a record, whichever order we do it in, and, you know, have some fun. Uh, so that's kind of what I'm hoping to do. But, you know, it's like I, I had this conversation a couple of years ago with Noel Gallagher, and he did he did one day with Johnny Marr. I'm like, why doesn't he just plan your whole record? And he's like, it's actually harder to schedule between my schedule and Johnny's schedule, even though we're buddies. It's hard to pin him down. And I get that. Yeah. You know, a guy yeah. like Slick is just, you know, he's hard to you know, he's got so much going on and he's, you know, even if he's not on the road per se, like he used to be, he's off to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. He's off to Chicago. He's off to L.A. He's off to London. You know, he's doing sessions. Yeah, so yeah, he's session doing, here, session there. Yeah. And, and, and yeah. So, right, right. so it's harder. And, and then, you know, I have things carved out that certainly don't pay the kind of money that it, it takes to get he and I on the same stage. So, you know, I've got to do those with my regular guys and then we've got to carve out things for the two of us to do as a 
you know, as a sort of different entity. So, uh, but, you know, it'll all happen and, and, uh, you know, you gotta, you gotta be patient, tenacious and, and, uh, you know, but I, I think the, the immediate goal is like you said, the birthday show, the fest is coming up. There's a bunch of stuff on the books that isn't announced yet for the, the spring. And that'll all be announced once the dates start to roll out on people's calendars, you know, the fest calendars and so forth. So, and of course, I'm um, sure you've got a lot of, you've got more articles that are, will be coming out and uh, well I'm, I'm going I'm writing for the the Orbison family the the official Roy Orbison coffee table biography oh, which I is like an ask, illustrated biography the yeah so there is I did the well, I did his liner notes for the greatest hits last year, and they asked me to do the book, which is coming out, I think, for Christmas. So that's I'm working on that literally right now. And then uh, I also got I did the interviews for the Dylan, the official Dylan mini documentary um, last fall for the 1966 live box set. So hopefully there'll be more of that with with Bob's office. And then there's another huge, huge, major project coming out in the spring by like the pinnacle of all pinnacles uh, that I got asked to do the liner notes for that I can't talk about yet, but once it is, you'll know what it is. You'll go, oh, that's what he was talking about. Ah. And so there's kind of stuff uh, percolating, and I know, you know, somebody put me forward for the next Bowie box that's coming out. And, you know, so there's, you know, there's all sorts of things kind of happening in the background, and if even half of them happen, I'd be a lucky guy and be able to pay the bills. So, you know, my thing to people who are listening, who are fans and who love this and who um, you know, want to do it, uh, you know, is be tenacious, get out there, keep doing it at a certain point, try to do it to the exclusion of everything else. And, you know, I think you will find that opportunities will present themselves. You might not be playing with Earl Slicker writing for Esquire, but your own version of that will happen. You just have to kind of find your podcast or your venue to play a residency at, or the people in your social circle who leads you to people like, you know, Earl or Pete or whomever it is. If you don't put yourself out there, you just don't know what's behind the curtain or behind door number three. So you just have to kind of keep at it and, and um, believe in yourself. Uh, great advice, Jeff. That's, uh, that's awesome. Hey, thanks for uh, spending the time with us uh, today. And uh, we look forward to hearing and seeing everything that uh, you do in the future. Uh, we're real, all real big fans. So uh, thanks for being with us. Thanks, man. Goodbye was the last thing that he wanted to say. But forced as he was, he was proud to obey. It had fallen to pieces, slowly but sure. But not quick enough She took part of him with her So wow, I guess the key to rock and roll life is Get to know Pete Townsend It was great having Jeff We thank him for his time and for being a friend of the show I heard a lot of solid advice in there for aspiring musicians, for aspiring writers, for whatever you want to pursue in life. I hope you caught that as well. Patience will create luck. Knock on doors. Don't be afraid to ask. That's how I got Jeff to do this interview. Can't wait to see that coffee table book about Roy Orbison. And I am real curious about the uh, secret project. 
I guess we'll just have to keep an eye on Jeff. You can do that as well. You can keep up with all things Jeff Slate at where else? JeffSlate.net. Oh, uh, one more thing. Just remember that you're standing on a planet that's evolving and revolving at 900 miles an hour. That's orbiting at 19 miles a second, so it's reckoned a sun that is the source of all our power. The sun and you and me and all the stars that we can see are moving at a million miles a day. In an outer spiral arm at 40,000 miles an hour of the galaxy we call the Milky Way. I'm Christian Swain, and this is Deeper Digs and Rock. We're out. Thanks for stopping by, and keep up the rockin'. Looking for ways to help right the wrongs of social injustice? Oxfam America works with people in more than 90 countries to save lives, develop long-term solutions to poverty, and campaign for social change. And we do it with the help of our friends in the music world. The Beatles were Oxfam supporters back in the day. So were the Stones. And through the years, musicians and music fans have helped Oxfam push hard to work for a just world without poverty. Folks like Radiohead, Coldplay, Pearl Jam, DJ Shadow, and many, many more have encouraged their fans to join the effort. You can too. Go to OxfamAmerica.org to learn how you can help. Deeper Digs in Rocks. Produced and hosted by Christian Swain. All sound design and incidental music by Busy Signal Studios. All quotes performed by actors unless noted. Playlists can be found at iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify. Please purchase these great and important tracks. All songs, clips, and references can be found on our show notes. Please visit rnrap.com for more information. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points.